Hello and welcome to the Urban Health Podcast, Keeping Busy People Healthy. I'm Stephanie Webster. I'm a nutritional therapist on Harley Street, London, specialising in gut health, fat loss and hormone optimization for the over 40s, although I do get other ages. And really, it's for busy city executives and entrepreneurs who are living life on the edge. And that can lead to some interesting choices that can lead to habits that might not serve you. To speak a little bit on that today, we have Wyatt on the show, and I'm here to understand your story, your interesting story, and you have come to me through Aaron Rabin, who was another guest on the show, an extraordinarily interesting guest, and he said to me that you have had a very interesting life. Why don't you just tell us in your own words why you're here? Why? Well, so like you said, I'm here through... Uh... Aaron, uh, and I met him through, uh, uh, he was a friend of my mom's, and uh, I don't know, we got started talking, we just kind of clicked, and um, you had interviewed him for this podcast, and uh, then I, uh, he, uh, I guess he recommended me, and uh, so now I'm here talking uh, to share a little bit about myself, a little bit about my story, and uh, what led me here today. So your story, um, t- tell us about your story. Oh, well, my story. Um, well, I'm originally from Ohio, uh, and uh, my parent, my dad was a uh, chemist, and he got laid off, and uh, so we ended up moving to Kimball, Nebraska, which uh, is, uh, I lived in a city, and then I moved to a really small town, so it was quite the culture shock, if you will, uh, and I think that's what uh, mostly led to, uh, that's part of, that's where I think my addiction started the most, uh, that's what started to lead to my addiction. At least, uh, I wasn't very popular in school. I got made fun of a lot. You know, the, no, I wasn't, I didn't have that last name in a small town, if you will. Uh, Mm -hmm. and so I got, I was different. I was very different from everyone else. I had a different way of thinking, different way of dressing, different way of, uh, speaking. And, uh, kids didn't take kindly to that. Um, and when, uh, I was uh, prescribed this uh, ADHD medication, and it was called Metadate, uh, and it's uh, pretty much an ethanamine, if you. And so, uh, when I was uh, younger, I uh, said, you know, when uh, people like me, when I behave, and these pills help me behave, so what happens if I take more of these? And so I took more of them, and lo and behold, I liked the feeling a lot. It made me feel powerful. It made me feel invincible is what it came down to. Uh, and, you know, throughout life, I just kept abusing these pills. And uh, I would have small moments where I would stop. My parents would catch me and I would stop. But that didn't last very long. Uh, and that eventually led into harder drugs and more alcohol and you know, just ruining my life one drug at a time, one use at a time. But importantly, this was a prescription medication. How old were you when you were prescribed this medication the first time? The methadone? Oh, I want to say about... I've been on pills my all my life, ever since I was a little kid. Um, I can't quite say when I was uh, prescribed this specific medication, but I've... Uh, I've been on ADHD meds for as long as I can remember. 
when did you start abusing them and not take as prescribed? When, when did you start taking more and more? I think I was about 10 or 11. 10 or 11. Sounds about right. Can you think back what triggered that? What, what made you want to... What, why then? Why did you start taking more then? Well, it's just, I'm a young kid, and I'm trying to fit in, and I'm trying to be what people want me to be, is what it was, and uh, so I figured, like I said, I figured it was, you know, hey, they like me when I behave, and I'm not all crazy, so what happens if I take more of them? Why, would they like me more? Wow. Now? Yeah. And did they, did they... Um, they, I don't, I, I felt really good. I don't know if they, uh, noticed the difference in me or not at all. <laughs> okay. So, but you did notice a difference when you were off the meds, they didn't accept you when you were on the meds, they, they liked you more. And then, but we don't know yeah. from there on in. We don't know if that happened. Okay. That's fine. No. So I want to talk about when you weren't on the meds, when you were just in your raw, pure, unmedicated, wild form. And what, what was the feedback? Because on some level that would have impacted you. You being you was not acceptable to them, right? That's the feeling. No. So what behavior I, I, did you display that was so uh, uh, unpalatable for them? So I'm a, I'm a, I have uh, ADHD. Me and too. It's, it, I'm very fidgety. Very fidgety. Um, teachers don't know how to handle that. They want all the kids to behave the same. They want to treat all the kids the same. And so I'm like loud. I, I turn into a class clown pretty much. And uh, I, I act out really bad. Um, and he is, uh, without the pills, I, I was, I couldn't sit still. I had a big mouth, I guess. Uh, they just didn't know how to handle who I really was off the meds. So, you know what? Don't you find that sentence a little bit? A little bit sad, a little bit, because you're, you're not loved for who you are. We only like you if you take these. And by the way, good luck with your adrenal fatigue and all of the stuff that these pills have. So on some level, that's quite sad, right? Like we, you go from being a baby with unconditional love to we only love you on condition that you not just behave, but you have to take these pills in order to be able to do that. I mean, on some level, that's a little bit, you know... Un unkind. Think, think about it. Back then, I didn't really think about it, but today, that's something I thought about a lot. It's yeah. just like, wow, these people didn't like me so much that I had to be put on these pills so I can be accepted somewhere. Okay. And then you took more. So then, yes. and then you got hooked, I guess, on the more. So by the way, I have ADHD yeah. too, and I've only taken meds probably once every week, once every two weeks only in the last year. I find them so strong. I actually don't like who I am when I'm on them. They do. The world does. But I don't like who yeah. I am. I like to connect. But anyway, this is about your story. So back back to you. So on the... Um, when you started to get addicted, did you know that you were sort of losing control to the meds? No. I Well, it's just... I don't know if I knew I was losing control, but it's hard to explain. That's a weird. Oh shoot, that's a weird question. Um, for me, 
I don't think I realized I was a drug addict for the longest time. Uh, up until I was like maybe 16, I finally realized it. Uh, but I did find it odd. I couldn't understand why I, I didn't want to stop doing it. No matter how many times my parents caught me doing it or someone else caught me doing it, I always wanted, I want to do more. I want more. And so I became very, uh, very sneaky as a person growing up. Very sneaky. And so I, I didn't think, I don't think I realized I was an addict, addict until I was like 16 or 17 the first time I got arrested. But hang on. So you went from medication that was prescribed and you were taking it in volumes that obviously you ran out of prescription quickly. So then you keep ordering more. And then yeah. there's that obviously your parents said, well, what is this? We can't keep paying. I imagine they were paying for your prescriptions. Yeah. And you were tearing through that. So is that when you had to go to non-prescription drugs, right? Street drugs in order yeah, to I, supplement the gap? Well, after a while, those pills stopped doing it for me. I wasn't yeah. feeling it anymore. That feeling I wanted, unless I took really, really big doses, which in return would make me run out of uh, that prescription, my metadate. And so then I end up... Uh, I was really computer savvy, and so I, I looked up a bunch of stuff about drugs, and so I became very knowledgeable in the area of narcotics. And so I figured, I found meth. I found what, out what meth was. I was like, oh, this is almost like what I'm taking, but it's better in my head. Okay. And so I, I, I uh, figured out what crowd I had to hang out with, what people I needed to talk to to get meth. And that was... I, I think the first time I did meth was around actual meth. I think I might have been 12 or 13. I have the pleasure of was seeing... Was my first taste. I have the pleasure of seeing your face, okay? Which the audience won't have yeah. that, that pleasure. So your skin is really good. Thank you. So uh, and considering, considering your... Because I, I really noticed on the small doses that I've been on of prescription that I can feel the skin, it just eats collagen and fetamines. They, it just yeah. destroys you. So yeah. what, what about, what about you? you? How old are you? I'm 23 now. Wow. You've been through an iceberg amount of stuff. For yes. your years. This is extraordinary. Okay, anyway, you went with the meth crowd. Tell me what happened then. Well, I, I uh, after hanging out this crowd for a long time, I started learning the in and outs of the drug world. Um, I, uh, and it was weird for most people. Most people, first high is like weed or something like that. Yeah. Mine was hard, hardcore drugs. Um, I didn't smoke weed my first time until I was like 13 or 14. Um, and I, I fell in love with that instantly, obviously. Uh, and But the more I hung out with this crowd, the more and more I got open up to this world of selling drugs and doing drugs. And that these people accepted me for who I was at the time. They accepted me. And so I found that exception with these people, this gang of people. And... I felt I felt welcome. I felt loved, and I think a lot of that feeling has to come from all the drugs that I was taking at the time. Because 
when I started, when I turned up between the ages of 15 and 16, that's when I started getting really into opiates and other pills and mixing drugs and cocaine and all, all that stuff. And I, I just felt accepted. I felt welcome and I was good at it. Mm-hmm. It was like, almost like I was natural at what I was doing. Yeah. And so I, I selling drugs and doing drugs have become a very, very big hobby for me. That's amazing. It's so interesting to hear that because you felt like for once in your life you belonged. Yeah. And did they accept you even without medication and drugs? They accepted you as you were in raw form, even when you weren't on anything, right? Or did they only like you because you took stuff? It it depends on the group. That's an interesting question. It depends on the group because there's times where I didn't have drugs and I would be, uh, I would be coming down really hard and they would know that and they would give me more drugs so I can feel better yeah okay I see this so here's what I'm playing with something in my head so I I believe that we're all born the way we're born and there is no such thing as disability and ability there is no such thing as you've got ADHD and you're normal there is no normal right we're all different We're all something. It's just, it just some of us have a diagnosis with that. At least we're classifiable and a bit more predictable. But for the rest of you, you're just your own version of normal. And unfortunately, you're, you're not uh, identifiable enough that we can actually help make this life gig a bit more personalized for you. So what I like about a diagnosis is it sort of signposts you into directions to make life more manageable because you can predict what you're like you can understand yourself better but it's certainly not right. a stamp of shame or a stamp of um uh, anything to be uh scared of for sure but um what you do with that information is very different what i find so common in the story of addiction is society didn't like me but these people liked me Now, the addicts that you're describing, they knew you were coming down, they accepted it, and they huddled around and gave you more drugs. Uh, It's their way of caring on some level. They're sort of looking after you on some level. To them, right? It it, it, it felt like a brotherhood. uh, Yeah, community vibe. And the few girls that were around me, um, and so it was, I felt... It felt like they cared. There was that caring. Oh, you're you're out of meth, or you need some pills. You need to fall asleep. Here's some clodipin. You know. Yeah. It's what it, it was. What it was. And they they taught me everything I knew about what I know about drugs today and how to sell it and even make some of it. Do you find this fascinating? <laughs> I just find it fascinating because. As a society, why can't we make people feel loved, looked after, catered for, so that they don't have to find these human emotions in circles that don't really serve them because it's bad for the health, right? Because how can you, as a mother, if my son went off and he's doing these things with this group of people, how can I ever convince him to come back home when he's found home, he's found love, he's found... That connection, that feeling, that sense of belonging, that sense of tribe, that sense of community, that, that brotherhood or whatever you want to call it, they, he feels looked after there. He feels understood. 
he feels heard. He feels like he belongs. He feels accepted for who he is, not marginalized for who he is. So, of course, they don't come home to mum. Why would they? When actually they never felt at home at home. They felt like an odd one out. And when people feel like an odd one out, that's when things start to unravel. And I, I, I mean that not just medically. I mean that spiritually. If you feel different, that's when you disconnect. And then you end up connecting with something that might not be in your interests. Right. And you won't listen to people trying to convince you to come away from the drugs because you're finally you found that connection. You found something. I don't know if that resonates with yeah. you. Anyway, so how long were you in this group for? The the the. Um. So thirteen shoot. and then yeah. For the longest time, uh, and you know, slowly over time, I did lose connection with them because uh, most of them lived uh, out of state. Uh, the town I lived in was on a border of two different states, Colorado and Wyoming, and that's how I got. I I found them. Uh, I, I became friends with them, one of them online, and that just that's the step that took to open this whole new world of uh, narcotics and narcotics selling or whatever you want to call it. And I think up until I think I lost contact with uh, one of the original ones up until uh, two two years ago, really. Mm-hmm. So you were 13 and then it, things got heavy. And then how long were you in that on the hard drugs for before you sort of came out of it? Um, so I'm 23 now. I got, so let me think. Uh, I think the last time I did hard drugs was a year and four months ago. Uh, so it's. It took a few tries moving again, but so let me think. One, so 19, 20, 21, about eight years, 10, 10 years. And if you want to count the metadata, that's, that's, that's a hard drug. Let's see. Let's see. You were born. How long were you off on nothing? I don't remember. I don't know. You took you took drugs early. Yeah, that's right. Okay, but but methadate was the hardest one, right? So pre methadate, yeah. you were okay. So I want to know how did your academic performance, which is running alongside all of this, right? How did your academic performance yeah. change you, before methadate, methadate, and then on the hard drugs? Um. Shoot, it was. I I, I always sucked in school. I've. I learned differently from other people, yep. and so I always I was always put in a, what was called an IEP because I was different. I, I was, you know, I had to learn differently, special ed, you know what it is. And so I always, growing up, I always felt like I was stupid. Yep. Because I was put in this separate group of kids because I learned differently. Um, mm-hmm. academically. I've never, I never cared about school, realistically. Um, you know, school was where all the bullies were for me. That's where all the people that made fun of me were. I was uh, homeschooled for four years, 
just to get away from it all. And uh, so, interesting. That's kind of that's another reason I found my. Uh, that, that's when I got harder into drugs is when I was homeschooled. Mm-hmm. Did you forge sick notes? No. Okay, you just didn't turn up. No, I I, I showed up to school. I just I was very spiteful about it. Uh-huh. And what were your grades like? Oh, they sucked. Uh, <laughs> I'll be the first one. The only classes I did really well in were all my computer classes. Um, uh-huh. Other than that, when it came to like math, English, uh, history, all those, I so I didn't care. But computers, you, you had a natural interest that. in, right? You were interested in computers. Yes. Okay. Yes. And so you nerded out over that. You found it interesting, so you stayed on it. Yes. And you know, with the ADHD brain, once you're interested in something, you almost get hooked on it, and you become obsessive, and it becomes your thing. And you, yes. Have you ever seen OCD tendencies in your personality? Where you sort of... Um, yeah. I can say, I, I, there's certain things that I will start doing, and I don't want to stop. And part of that could be OCD, and part of that could be because I have a very addictive personality, too, though. Okay. Do you believe you have an addictive personality, or do you believe that your body, the chemicals that you received, your body got hooked on it, or do you think it's your personality? I'm just wondering. I'm just interested. There isn't a, um, a real I, answer to that. I don't see... A lot of people believe that uh, addiction is a hereditary thing. Yeah, some people believe that. Um, I don't believe that for myself. There is no drug addicts in my family. There might be one or two alcoholics. That's about it. Uh, I don't think I was uh, always a... I don't think I was born an addict whatsoever. I think I was made an addict, almost. With all the the pills I was on, uh, given to me by doctors... And I think I was made an addict. And I think that's what gave me my addictive personality I have today. That makes me really angry to hear. You know? Right. Hmm. How do you deal with that? Um, how do I deal with that? Like, are you angry that they made me, you know? an addict, you know, that's quite annoying. Well, it's just, it's, I, I can't change anything about it now. Um, young kid, and after, I'm, I'm sure when they tell my mother about these medications, she wants, she wants what's best for me. That's what my mother, she wanted to help me. And... So when a doctor says, hey, maybe we should put him on this, and this will help your son behave better, uh, she was probably like, okay, you know, the doctor said it. And she's very smart, too. She was a, she went to college for, to be a nurse. And so she knows about a lot of this stuff. And so she has a very doctor opinion, a nurse's opinion, too. Conformist, yeah. And so she, okay, yeah, so she, this will help him. And I don't blame anybody, uh, Doctors are doing what they're supposed to do. My mom's trying to do what's best for me. And it's one of those, I can't change it, so why threat about it anymore? I get it. I completely get it. 
when you were in the gang, did you learn how to sell, how to... So what skills did you develop when you were in that group? I say gang, anyway. I mean the crowd um, that introduced you to meth and all these sorts of things. So when you were in that crowd, did you notice that you're good at selling, that you're good at marketing, that you're good at studying the chemical components? Did, what did you notice about yourself? Well, making, making dope, you can, there, you can find stuff in your house to make dope. Really? Yeah, it's... It's it's not it's it's a basic basic chemistry is what I was told, and I I don't know if I understand the chemical uh, aspects of it. I just know what goes with what to make what. Okay, well teach me. Teach you? I don't know if I can do that. Oh, okay, fine. <laughs> but you said I've got stuff in my house that can make dope. Well, like Drano, uh, you can go to the store and get uh, a Sudafed. Which is one of the ingredients. Uh, there's a um, chemical called uh, anhydrous ammonia, and that's what farmers use to fertilize the ground. Oh. Uh, you can use that. You can use uh, there's a uh, red. I can't say the word properly. Red froth. Shoot. It starts with a pH. Red uh, froth. Yeah, I can't say certain Don't worry. words. Uh, there's that one. Yeah. Uh, there's all there's all kinds of stuff. There's all kinds of different ways to make it. It's weird. Okay. I've, wow. There's battery acid in it, stuff like that. Why, why are we eating Alkaline. that? Alkaline. And, and we so we eat that. Why? Because we want to feel what? Oh, uh, we uh, smoke it, you know, or whatever. Oh, the right. dope. Um, the dope you can smoke. You can shoot it up, and you you can snort it. You can. Is that to feel relaxed? Uh, no, it it's a it's a speed. It's speed. Oh, is it? oh okay. It, it makes I, you go. Oh, okay. I thought dope was a relaxer. Um. Well, okay. So the definition of dope is anything that's mind altering. So dope can uh, mean weed. You hear a lot of old hippies called uh, weed dope. Uh, weed, heroin, pills, meth, amphetamines. You know, anything's dope that alters your mind. I see. I see. So. You were with this crowd for quite some time. I've got a question on the different types of uh, drugs and the different types of people that attract different drugs. So the cocaine people versus the magic mushroom people versus the weed people uh, and then the ecstasy MDMA people. And do you not find that there's like, it's not, some people like their drug and they stick to, to that and they won't cross over. Some people cross over. And then, don't you find that interesting? Yeah. Like the different tribes? Oh yeah, absolutely. So if, if you look at like, um, uh, in the hip hop uh, culture, there's a lot of uh, lean, which is codeine and promethazine. And there's also a lot of Xanax and stuff, especially today. Uh, and people are always, that's big there. And then you got all, you know, the older hippie, you know, the hippie type people. And there's, uh, you know, the magic mushrooms, there's the weed. And then they occasionally, I know they mess with pills. Uh, and then you just got, it's, yeah, it is different. It's different everywhere. There's a, uh, the heroin is, uh, I know it's, it's only big in certain cities. Yeah. Uh, it's only big in certain cities. Um. And it wasn't up until, I think, the 90s when meth uh, 
got really introduced to the East Coast because back in the East Coast back when it was mainly crack and heroin. Mm. And meth was more of a Midwest thing, I think. So and it's still really big in the Midwest. Mm. You can you can find it everywhere. Mm-hmm. And within drug culture, are certain drugs considered like the ultimate hard? What's considered? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Okay. Like. So. So let's look at this. When I was messing around with coke a lot, I know it's a lot of rich people did their coke. A lot of rich people like cocaine for some reason. I know. It's a classy drug. It's it's a designer drug. Oh, okay. That's what it is. It's a designer drug. Um, And so, you know, someone who does coke, they're going to talk down on someone who does meth. Oh, meth is such a dirty drug. Heroin is such a dirty drug, you know? And it's it's the same thing with... uh, What's another good example? Meth and uh, alcoholics, even. Uh, you hear a lot of meth addicts say, oh, at least I'm not an alcoholic. I'm not out there drunk. I can control myself, at least. Yeah, yeah. You know? Yeah. yeah. It's all this. I find this interesting. Really interesting. And the thing with alcohol is it's socially acceptable to drink. It's almost socially acceptable to be drunk, even. And then where is the line too much? Because we actually celebrate stories like... Oh, he was so drunk, he could barely find his keys to open the door, you know, to get back in his house. Yeah. We sort of celebrate this sort of stuff. But if you say, oh, he was on meth, he didn't turn up till 10 o'clock on Monday, that's considered no, right? So it's, it's just interesting what's socially acceptable and what isn't socially acceptable. I know I'm talking random thoughts. Are you still with me? Because I feel like uh, I'm talking... Yeah. Oh, I know. I'm still with you. It's, it's really weird because within the... I don't want to know if I want to call it a meth community, but people who groups of people who do meth, the ultimate high on meth is shooting it up into your veins. That's taboo almost. Oh, okay. Okay, so like if one of the people in that group does that, all the others go, "Oh my god, that guy," and they they judge oh, the oh my person. God, yeah, he's gone. Yeah, he's gone too far. He's yeah. gone too far. It's funny, isn't it? Yeah. Like the Fifty yeah, yeah, Shades I, I, of Grey. Not a goofy. Yeah, but can you imagine if you're not accepted in society unless you're on pills, and then you're not accepted in those circles because you've taken it too far? Then you're not accepted anywhere. Do you see what I mean? And yeah. then, and then he's like lost, lost, right? And then, yeah. where where do you go from there? And you don't, and that's when it gets really bad. Yeah. Oh yeah. So. I sort of want to stay here before we start talking about your recovery, if that's okay. No, that's fine. Are you uncomfortable? No, 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 no. I'm an open book. Why are you an open book? Why are you so candid about your I, story? It's, yeah, I, I, I can't, that's hard to explain. Um, I just got nothing to hide. Uh, I'm not afraid to say what I've done or what I've done or how I've done it because I'm a better person today. Not that that defines who I am right now in this moment. It does. Where my feet are. Uh, I, I came a long way, and, you know, and I, I share stuff because hopefully if it can reach one person and help one person, I did something good. What advice would you give to that one person? Go home. 
honestly, though, I remember in my addiction, um, I would never go to my parents' house. I'm high. And I didn't want to be where my parents, they were a buzzkill, right? Um, but my mom and dad were so, just so worried about me. They didn't know if I was going to turn up in a ditch, that police were going to knock on the door, hey, your son died of an overdose. You need to come identify his dead body. And just go home. Call your parents. They're, you're, I didn't realize how sick and worried my family was until I got clean, how bad it really was. Yeah, but you also didn't care, right? No, on drugs, I it's so that's a harder feeling to explain. I cared, but I cared about getting high more. Yeah, 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 okay. Yeah. Yeah, you're not, you understand, but you just don't care. Like, you, you care, I understand. You've just got other agendas to, to pursue. I get it. Yeah, another, another piece of advice is like one thing I taught myself and I found out quickly through my recovery is people, other recovering addicts care and they understand. You're, no one's problem ever, you know, one thing I learned is if you've gone through something yourself, someone else has gone through that. And someone will always be there in some type of 12-step program to help you. And I live by that. I live in a I live in a recovery house. And I live by that. That has helped me so much. Just being around a group of addicts, living with addicts that are guys, helps, helps me so much. Mm-hmm. Addicts that are guys? Yeah, I live in an all-guys house. It's not co-ed or anything. Oh, okay. Okay, interesting. So, your... Let's talk about your recovery. Because if somebody's listening to this and they are addicted or they're struggling or they're on their third try or whatever it is, wherever they are in their journey, I want you to think of a person, probably who you already know, that you just wish... and, And really visualize that person, male, female, doesn't matter. But there's probably somebody already in your circle... And I want you to sort of give them the advice, make it real, um, that you understand where they are and you know that there is a way out and what the path is. So let's let's talk about your recovery. Some advice. Well, for me, what had to happen to me is um, when I was selling, uh, I, I ended up selling to uh, a snitch, some that was working with the cops as a confidential informant. And they ended up getting two wire buys on me. And I remember I was, it was a weird experience. I was laying on my mom's couch and I was coming down really hard. I just ran out. And at this time I was shooting up and I, at this point I lost everything. I had no money. I wasn't, I wasn't able to sell drugs anymore because of no money. And I just, it was my, it was my bottom. I have reached a bottom in my life. I remember laying on the couch, and my mom's talked about to me about rehab before, and she was babysitting a little girl, and I told her. I, I woke up kind of. I was like, Mom, I'm, I can't do this anymore. I'm sick. I don't feel good about this. I need to go to rehab. Take me to rehab. I'm done. I, let's get this thing go, right? And uh, not two hours later, uh, the feds were knocking on my door with a warrant. Uh, 
because of those two wire buys, I had caught four felonies uh, at 21. So I, I went to jail, obviously. And I sat in jail for a couple weeks. And when I was maybe a little longer, I can't remember. Uh, and they had my bond originally at $100,000. And they lowered it to uh, ten grand. And I finally got bailed out. And uh, so my parents bailed me out. I got to see my little sister graduate. And then I went to rehab. That's when I finally went to rehab. And I, I was scared. I didn't know what to do. I'd never been to a rehab before. You know, what is this? And that's when I, uh, it was a 12-step rehab program, rehab. And so I got into it. And I ended up relapsing there at rehab. You, re you relapsed at rehab? Yeah, I did drugs at rehab. Yeah, yeah, it's very common. Uh, you know, it's more common than we think. You know, uh, is and like yeah. people like to go to jail sometimes because it's cheap rehab, right? <laughs> but actually, there's yeah. apparently there's quite a lot of drugs in in, in jail. I've, I've been told. So. Oh yeah. I, it's all secondhand information, I'm afraid. So, um, uh, I, I've lived a real life, but just not in this sphere. So. Let, tell me about your relapse and rehab. Did you rebel against being controlled? By did you feel controlled, or did you was your body just craving, or what was it? Well, so when I got out of jail, my original plan was to have my last hurrah with drugs. I was gonna get an eight ball, some dope, get some some needles, and I was gonna shoot up an eight ball in a matter of days. Uh, probably less than that, even. I'm not, hi so I'm not I hip enough. I'm not hip enough. T tell me what an eight ball is, because I'm not quite down with the with the kids. Oh, an eight ball, it's just, it's, a, it's just a certain amount of meth. That's oh, okay. like, um, an eight ball's just a good amount of meth. Okay. Good amount of dope. And so that was my plan. My dealer was going to front me, because I was really good friends with her. And uh, so she, uh, so what ended up happening was I got out of jail, and I was going to go get the sneak out of my parents' house and go get the dope the next day at night. My parents were sleeping. And uh, she ended up getting raided the next day, the day after I got out of jail. She got raided. So I was just like, oh, this is great. Now I can't get high. And so I went to uh, rehab. No, not, not how and is she? Not is she okay? Not, oh, I'm really worried about her. Damn, I can't get high. This is the addict brain. Yeah. The, the addict brain is so... Yes controlled by the drug that it doesn't even take any other human emotion into consideration it's hilarious anyway i say hilarious in a, in a sarcastic way carry on <laughs> and so i when i got to rehab and i wasn't i i thought i wasn't planning on getting high that was not my plan i was like okay i'm in rehab let's give this clean thing a try let's take this seriously and it was weird it was a guy that graduated from that rehab i saw him graduate and he came back like two, one or two days later, and uh, we were in, uh, we call it the butt hut, it's where we all go smoke our cigarettes. And I was smoking a cigarette with one of uh, the patients there, and he comes through, and he's just sitting there, we're smoking a cigarette, he's like, it's out of nowhere, uh, I'm, nothing triggered that, him to ask him, none of us at least did, and he was like, you guys want to get high? I was like, on what? He was like, I got some meth. I was like, okay, let's get high. Let's do this. And so I ended up getting high. I got caught, obviously, because it doesn't take much for someone to know you're high on meth. <laughs> yeah. 
And so I got caught. And I owned up to everyone in the patient group. And I was like, hey, I got high. Uh, I apologize. Uh, Were they jealous? I'm of- high right I don't, I don't, <laughs> a couple, they might have been, I, I can't say for sure. I just know I triggered a bunch of people and I felt bad. Oh, you triggered them into relapses. I, I don't know if I triggered them into relapses. I don't know what else relapsed when I was there like that, but I definitely, I put that thought in their head, I'm sure, for some of them. Like, oh, he got high, I, I can't be around him, I, I can't talk to him, that makes me want to do it. Because I'm a, depending on the type of meth, I, when I do meth, I'm a motorhead. Sometimes I don't know when to shut up. So it actually makes you more ADHD-ish, right? Yeah, after a, yeah, I, it was weird. At first, it, it used to calm me down more. Mm. And, but after a while, my body, it just started again. <laughs> so, it gets the wheel spinning for me a little bit. And that's when I kind of, when I realized, that's when I kind of finally realized, like, I can't run away from this. And my, my original plan after I got out of rehab, I, I graduated rehab, and I, I got some days clean. I actually, when I moved here to North Platte, Nebraska, I, uh, when I got to the halfway house, the three-quarter house, recovery house, whatever you want to call it, um, I, uh, my original plan was to get through this, all this probation, all this whatever, and I'm going to smoke weed again because weed's not a drug. It's a plant, right? And... So what ended up happening, because I had this reservation in my mind, I ended up smoking weed while living in this recovery house, and I, uh, they did a drug screen on me, and I uh, tested hot for THC, right? And I was just, oh, okay. So I got kicked out, and I was in a homeless shelter for a little bit before I moved into a different um, uh, recovery house, an Oxford house. Uh, and so I lived in there for a while, and it was unhealthy. It was just unhealthy. Um, there was no accountability there. There was no, no, no one had real recovery there. And I got really depressed there in a dark place. And I ended up getting this girlfriend I met in uh, a 12-step room. And uh, bad idea. And we dated for a long time, but it, was, it wasn't even about it was me trying to fulfill something. So I'm trying to find fulfillment. And so it was a relationship solely based on that. So there was just a lot of sex, if you will. And it was just me trying to get that instant gratification I'm always looking for. Um, and I ended up really, we ended up really unhealthy for each other. And I ended up relapsing really hard on uh, drugs. I ended up shooting up again. I uh, ended up, popping a bunch of pills, and I ended up blacking out a few times that week because of it all, getting drunk, uh, just going crazy, really. And I was on bond still. So, and that's when it finally, after that, I got clean for like two weeks living at my sister's house here, and I relapsed again. And I was just like, I was. I remember sitting there, and I was smoking, I was smoking some dope, and I remember sitting there, she was like, this is not why I moved to North Platte. This is not why I got here. And I now realizing it was, I, 
no matter where I move, this drug is going to be there. It's either I do something about it now, or I die. And that, I remember going, talking to some people and telling them, if I relapse again, my plan is to die. That's what I want. I don't even, I didn't want to, I, I wanted to live, but I didn't want to live like that. I just didn't know how to handle it all at the time. And so I eventually moved out of the original, uh, out of the back into the original recovery house that I originally came to here in North Platte. And I finally, that's when it finally started to click. After I got out of the depression, in the depression I realized I got to do something different. I'm living the same way I was on drugs without the drugs. So I had to do something different. That's what made me move back into that house. And I finally dived into my, um, this uh, 12-step program. I dived into it. I committed to it. And my life has never been so better. I've never been more happier in my life. Um, I have, I now have, uh, I guess I, a year and four months clean, which I never thought I'd be able to do. I thought I was going to die in drugs. And I have a healthy girlfriend now and I have a good job and I have, uh, I, I, I'm getting my, I'm working on getting my driver's license. Finally, I never had a driver's license in my life. I now have a learner's permit and I would not have been able to do any of this if it wasn't for the fact that I'm clean. And live in a house I live in. What advice would you give to people who don't find being normal appealing? So the idea of coming clean and then they've got the job, they've got the girlfriend, they've gone legit, right? And then they're a little bit, well, this is not very adrenaline rushing. I'm going to go back to the drugs because this is a bit dull. Whereas you're, you've found a high in normal, right? You've, and for once in your life, you're normal and happy with it. You're socially, you found your way of making social acceptability work for you. Right. Um, normal is such an abstract word for me. I don't like the word normal. Um, there's no such thing as normal. What's, what's normal to me yeah. is abnormal to someone else. Yeah. Uh, even being out of my addiction, I'm really, I like, I have hobbies. I have hobbies. I have found hobbies. I like to lift weights. Yeah. I, uh, I BMX. I skateboard. Uh, stuff I used to love to do before addiction really took control of my life. Nice. And uh, uh, I love to, I get a bunch. I have a bunch of tattoos and piercings. Uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm nowhere near normal. The only difference is I'm clean and I live healthy. You look healthy oh. as you look really healthy. Looks deceased. Thank you. But you look really well. What I mean is you look integrated. I don't know if that makes any sense. You look like you are who you are. You're comfortable with who you are. Other people may not like it. You're okay with that. And there's, there's all this acceptance around you. And, you know, you're okay with that. Yes. I always live by the rule... People may reject me for who I am, but I'm never going to reject myself. Epic. Again. <laughs> I mean, hello. That is beautiful. I love it. And you, 
you've almost gone on a journey of becoming more you. Yeah. I have found myself more in recovery than I ever had experimenting with hallucinogenics, with any type of speed, any type of downers, anything like that. Like, I have found myself more now than with drugs. What drugs did was numb. That's all it did. It's just numb. I thought I was something I wasn't. Well, that's really interesting. So, so there's a difference between, can we, can we maybe agree, perhaps, that there's a difference between the drug and then your relationship with the drug. So there are people who can take a drink and go home. And there are other people who a drink, a drink, a drink, a drink, and they, be, you know, life goes bad. And then other people have this, there's these cultures now, these entrepreneurs who do this ayahuasca, they go on these retreats, they have the sit, they have this chanting, so maybe once a year or twice a year, they have this psychedelic and they get these insights and they think, ah, oh, I'm going to go home and I'm going to float my company or I'm going to sell my shares or I'm going to fire my C- CFO or whatever. They make these business decisions based on deep insights that they've got on these psychedelic experiences. They're not addicted to ayahuasca. They have a, a disconnected relationship with it, but I don't know. So I'm just wondering, what's your stance on, obviously, the world of addiction and 12-step programs is full of those who did not have a healthy relationship with the substance and it's wrecked their lives, right? So what's your opinion on people who take things now and again, but they still function? Uh, So someone that takes something now and again and still function, that's not really an addict, in my opinion. I'm not, I can't really judge that, per se, but... For me, if I were to take, uh, if I were to drink a beer, just a simple beer, right? Open, crack open a cold one with the boys. I can't just have one beer. I can't. I don't know what that's like. I don't know. My dad can buy a six pack and make it last months. I don't know how he does it. It's crazy. It's mind boggling to me. I can't do that. Um, for so for someone, someone who can go, like like you said, do some ayahuasca. And get some spirituality out of it. That's more. That's a spiritual thing. Native Americans do that. Um, that's. I think that's different. I can't do that though, personally. Yeah. Because I don't want. I do ayahuasca or any other kind of hallucinogenic. Oh, I, I don't. Screw reality. Get get me. Let's escape. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, that's interesting. For, for me, one is too many, and a thousand is never enough. Do you feel wise beyond your years? I do. I've always been told I have uh, grown up, especially even even the people who got me into older. I've always had older friends that got me into drugs. I always said I have an old soul. Um. And there's not very many people my age. Uh, there, there's, there's a good amount of them. There's a lot of them. But in, like, small areas, there's not a lot of people my age who've gone through what I've been through so early in life. What sentences go through your head on your day-to-day, you know, when you're loving your body, when you're drinking water, when you're lifting weights, and you're looking after yourself, self-care, self-love, you know, and that's life-affirming, right? You're not trying to kill yourself. In fact, you're you're very much looking after your body. So you you eat better, I imagine. I imagine you're running with a philosophy now in your life that makes you make healthy choices across the board. 
Well, what goes? Oh, so I'm very conceited sometimes. Um, I'll be the first one to admit it. Uh, when I'm lifting weights or something, there's you know, there's mirrors all over the place, so you can check your form and stuff. I look at myself and I almost check myself out a little bit. There's a lot more. There's a lot more self confidence. I feel happier with myself. I don't care what Joe Smo down the road thinks of me anymore. That doesn't matter to me. What matters is I'm happy with the way I am and the way I'm doing things. Yeah. Yeah. And then this is very life affirming. So you're no longer trying to destroy yourself. You're trying to yes. live, live to the max max, right? In fact, yeah, life positive. You're, you're more life positive because you know the value, you know the cost, you know what it's like to almost not have that. So you, be, you become more committed and more proactive in the pursuit of life positive. Exactly. Yes. If we took your software now, as it is, and we put that in the brain of the 13-year-old who didn't feel comfortable and decided to take more, 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 what would your response be now to those social pressures if we took what you know now and put it in that 13-year-old boy? Do you know what I mean? Well, that's, that's interesting. I, honestly, speaking from my mind, I wouldn't. I, uh, every experience I went through, I went through because I was strong enough to handle them and become the person I am today. Um, I guess, I guess if I, the answer to that, if I were to, I wouldn't change anything. I can't answer. That's I I don't know how to answer that. Okay. Let me do it in a different way. When you were 13, you felt scared and you felt threatened maybe, or not loved. And you felt the need to up the dose. So there was a decision there. There was motives there that you took action on. So you decided, no, no, I want to up this. I want to not feel this pain. I want to escape from this pain that I'm feeling as a 13-year-old boy in this hostile environment, the school where I'm being bullied, I'm misunderstood, I'm, I don't behave. Uh, I want to feel different. So I'm going to take more dose, right? But you wouldn't do that now. If you are in a situation now where you feel either co-workers are doing that to you, it won't trigger the same response in you now. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Uh, if people if try I and had, bully you I, now, I, I you're bulletproof now. Right. I thought about this. If I was, um, let's, say I, let's say I was a 13-year-old boy, Wyatt, now, um, and I, I had all this knowledge already, I think uh, that's hard to see. That's that's a weird way to think for me. Uh, I don't think I if I knew what I knew now, I definitely would have I would have done things completely differently. Um, whether it would have been the right way or the wrong way, I don't know for sure. But I think I would have done things a little differently. I think I would have gone to college at least. Uh, but it's probably a good thing I didn't go to college too. But I think I would have. I, I think I would have chosen some different paths, definitely for sure. This isn't a, a story about regrets. This is a story about you now will be faced in your job or whatever with bullies, with social pressure. But you won't respond in the same way. You'll go, "Yes, this is who I am." Whereas the boy yeah. went, "Oh, you don't like me." Oh, 
how can I be liked? I'll take three of these, right? Whereas now you'll go, oh, you don't like me? Sorry about that. Next. And you move on. I don't know. I don't know if you can see what I'm trying to say. So your response... Yeah, I can see what you're saying. Your response will be different to the same pressure because you've changed. You've grown. You own yourself. Yeah. And it's wonderful to see. Thank you. <laughs> it really is. What are your ambitions now? My ambitions? Oh, man, I got so many. I want to do all kinds of things. Um, ever since I was a kid, I always told my parents, ever since I was a little boy, I've always wanted, I always told my parents, I'm going to be known one day, and I'm going to be rich, and I'm going to take care of all of you. That's, I've, and I still say that to this day. People think I'm crazy for it, but I don't care. That's my, that's my dream. That's what's going to happen. Yeah. It's not even a matter if it's going to happen. It is going to happen. Um, I really want to, I've been thinking about going to college to take some, take marketing and maybe some graphic design. And I want to have my own production company. I want to, like you, I want to be able to do podcasts. I want to ever do shows, make t-shirts, make clothes, make just all forms of things. Production has always been my with computers, anything. I want to do it all. Yeah. I have to say, using ADHD to your advantage in media and marketing and it is going to put you at an advantage. It really is. Because ADHD in the creative space, I have found it to be an extraordinary gift. The ability yeah. to think of multiple things and connect things and see the world differently is a real plus in broadcasting. Right. So I, it is perfect for you. And you're a big personality. And you're going to splash all over. And it's going to be fantastic. And I can't wait to watch it. <laughs> Thank you. And you're so young and so strong now. And it's about being aware of who are the people in your life that we need to thank that are keeping you at the healthiest version of you, the better version of you, you know? And there's those yeah. people. Yeah, if it wasn't for the Platte Valley Recovery House I live in today, I would not be anywhere near where I'm at right now. Those guys have held me accountable, um, and I didn't like it all the time, but it's, it's always stuff I needed to hear. I, I needed to hear it, and I wanted to rebel against it, but I learned to take suggestions from people. And it's once I did that that I finally... Start, stuff started to change and people started to come up to me like, man, Wyatt, you, you've changed. There's something about you that's glowing. There's something about you that's different. You have really changed. And I, and I, I love that seeing that. I like watching you grow. And it's a very conflicting feeling. At first, I'm like, what do you want from me? And then I, I kind of realized like, they do care. They really do care. And that's it's such a wonderful and beautiful feeling. You know, I love feelings. It's okay to feel anything, I think. Do you know when it's weird when, when people care about you more than you care about yourself? Have you ever felt that? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And it's weird. And yeah. it's, but it inspires you to look after yourself. It really, it really does. For the longest time, my mindset was, this person cares about me. I really don't care about myself. <laughs> Why do they care so much? I don't even care. But they're invested, right? And then... Yeah, they're invested. They want to see me be bigger, better, and wonderful. How did you deal with it when they pulled away and went, all oh, right, I sold you then. You know, I'm just going to... 
how did you deal with it when that, someone who's like this with you just backs off? Backs off? I feel I feel hurt. I'm not gonna lie. I get my feelings hurt. I'm a big. I'm a. I'm a. I'm, a, I'm kind of a softy. I'm sensitive. I won't. You know, that's that's just who I am. And you know, sometimes I get hurt, and sometimes I look at the situation, and someone pulls away from me. Sometimes it's for the better. It's something I get. I got to look at the situation. Look, what can I learn from this situation right here, right now, in front of me? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Wyatt. I could talk to you for hours, but I don't want to make this too long for anyone who's listening. But <laughs> is there anyone, it's just so, I, I just find you fascinating and how you think and how you've been through and how you've faced yourself because, you know, we tell ourselves some stuff and you're playing chess with the best version of you and the evil version of you and you're playing chess against yourself. So you know the game, you've designed the game, so you win and lose depending on whether you want to win and lose on any given day because you have to do this dance in the head. Right? I don't know if you are. Right. Can you see that? So, I'm very impressed that you have conquered this and you build from here. You create, this is the new standard, and then you build, and this is a new standard, and then you build, and then it's, um, it's refreshing to see, and it's just really nice to speak to you. Thank you so much. It was awesome talking to you as well. If people want to get in touch with you, how do they get in touch with you? If people get in touch with me, um, you know, it depends. I, uh, I need emissions for my house. Um, so I, I get calls all day on the emissions phone. Uh, I have Facebook. Uh, I'm pretty friendly. So if, if people want to, like, nine times out of ten, if somebody sends me a Facebook post, and I know it's not going to be some kind of uh, robot trying to, get to me or something like that. I, I, I'm open about uh, accepting people. I used to talk to people all the time, especially in uh, especially to uh, what's the word? My mind, my train went off the rail there for a second. That's I used okay. to talk to people in all kinds of, I used to have friends in uh, Japan. I used to have friends in the UK. Uh, just through gaming, I play a lot of video games. I used to have friends everywhere. I'm a friendly person. Yeah, it's good. Well, you know what? In school, you had to do things their way or the highway, and if you didn't conform, you fell aside, right? The the nice thing about 12-step yes. programs is, well, these are the standards. We need to get you clean. Now, how all of you get to these standards is all personalized. And what I like about that yeah. style, yeah, you agree, right? Yes. So, what's more beautiful about it is like in these 12 steps room, there's all these different personalities and they all click. We all have that one thing in common and that's what brings us together. We all want to get clean. And, yes. And then he gets clean earlier, he gets clean. We, we all have different starting points. And we all have different obstacles and some might take a few reiterations to get over that one, you know, and there's different learnings and different roadblocks and, and they are so welcoming. They just say, if you screw up, come back, try again, try again. But yeah. These are the standards. So it's a, it's very adapted. The personalized coaching that happens with the individual conversations you've had with people, they have really helped take you on your journey, they're taking you under their wing. Anyone listening to this 
who resonates with Wyatt and who wants to speak to Wyatt, has made himself open to being contacted. So if you believe that he could be part of your journey of recovery, it would be a privilege for him to serve you in this way. Right. Wyatt, thank you. No, thank you so much. This was this this was this was awesome. You're awesome. Thank you. Okay, thank you everyone for listening to the Urban Health Podcast, keeping busy city executives and entrepreneurs inspired and healthy.